So welcome to the Praxis Behind the Obscure podcast. And today I have a guest from Korea, where I am, a fellow friend of mine. We both have a mutual interest in many different topics from uh, Western occultism, Thelema, Buddhism. And uh, we've been chatting a lot lately uh, through Facebook or other means and methods about Buddhism. And uh, we've had that shared interest. And he actually kind of turned me on to looking into the Avatamsaka Sutra, which I believe in English is called, I always forget, I think it's called the Flower Ornament Sutra in English. And uh, I've also been recently studying with uh, Vajrayana Buddhism with a couple um, lamas, and they really, really also uh, highly advised me to read this as almost uh, described as being like the pinnacle of Mahayana, like one of the best uh, sutras to dive into. And one of the uh, like literary masterpiece in many ways is how they describe it. So it'd be good. Uh, I believe that you had mentioned, um, Matt here had mentioned that I think he had studied a bit in college. He went over the sutra a bit in college and then kind of re-examining, re-examining it these days. So uh, yeah, welcome to the podcast. And maybe you can give us a little background of like, what is uh, the Avatamsaka Sutra? Where did it come from? Maybe a little bit of background about the sutra itself. Ryan, thanks for having me on your show. I'm a, I'm a fan. And um, yeah, Ryan and I have, have sparked up a really nice and productive friendship over the past few years. And um, starting about last year, um, as Ryan says, we, some of our conversations started tending towards um, more yoga and Buddhist topics. And um, so my, in my experience, like, like Ryan says, um, goes back to college and I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm about 50 something now. So college for me was about 30 years ago. And um, yeah, I had this wonderful professor at UC Santa Cruz. His name is Raul Birnbaum. Uh, great guy. Uh, I took actually three or four classes from him. Um, and he was the one who introduced me to Avatamsaka. And you, you stumbled over the title a little bit there. You actually said it correctly, but you, you're having a little bit of bit of difficulty remembering it, mm-hmm. remembering it. And it's, it's, it's logical because actually there's many titles for it. There's not just one title. Um, so yeah, don't feel bad about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for where it comes from, that is such a tricky, tricky question. And that has been sort of my self-prescribed research question for the past mm, couple months or so. Mm. And um, it's, it's sort of, it's, um, as we've been, um, going back and forth, you and I, Ryan, we, we have admitted that a lot of Mahayana texts have uh, a, a somewhat shadowy uh, origin. And, um, but there are some things that we can say with, with a certain amount of certainty. And, um, so I prepared a little bit of a, a presentation uh, uh, on on this topic, um, and maybe we can talk about it a little bit. Okay, so um, how far do its origins stretch? The farthest back that we can stretch with certainty is basically to the second century. The earliest transa- translation of a part of the text that we have is associated with the name Lokasima who translated a work entitled Fo Shuo Do Shuo Jing uh, between the years 178 and 189. And it corresponds to the names of Tathagata chapter seven in Cleary's translation. Mm. And then this, this guy, the same guy, Lokasema did another translation of, um, is called the Enlightenment through the Light of Tathagata, and uh, the Chinese name is Rudai Guangming Zhupin, and that chapter is chapter nine in Clear's translation. So, so there's actually a in the whole book. Okay, I should explain for your audience. The book is a, is about fifteen hundred pages. It's rather long, <laughs> uh, and um, and there's about thirty nine chapters. Many of these chapters have origins that go back to about the second century. And that we, that's, we know for sure. Mm -hmm. Now that's when the translation happens. 
that means we know that a previous version existed from that translation, Mm. but we don't know exactly how far that stretches. Okay, so there's circumstantial evidence that it might well stretch back to the first century BCE, but pointing to that era is sort of mostly suggestive, the evidence more tenuous than we might like, and often a bit speculative, if tauntingly solid here and there at certain times as well. Uh, Okay, but let's put that era, you know, first century BCE aside, that evidence aside for the moment, because it's a mystery. And let's try to uh, start on more solid ground. But before we go back onto the solid ground, let me tell you a little, a little um, legend. Um, So the so-called original translations are also called abridged, the abridged version, since, as legend has it, the primordial Buddhavatamsaka Sutra was much longer than any of the extant versions, according to this legend, Nagarjuna, from the second century, the founder of uh, Madhyamaka, that means like middle way, philosophy, uh, he brought the sutra into the world from the palace of serpents, or the palace of Naga, Uh, these serpents guarded three versions, which the Chinese exegetes call the upper, the middle, and the lower sutras. The longest is the upper version, which consisted of uh, slokas, which is like verses, identical in number to that of the specks of dust in the great universe, (laughs) and chapters identical in number to that of the specks of dust in the four worlds. The middle version contained 498,000 verses and 1,200 chapters, while the lower version consisted of 100,000 verses and 48 chapters. The upper and middle versions were too difficult for people, so Nagarjuna brought the shortest version with him. This story was thought to be borne out by the fact that according to Daji Dolun, the Sutra of Inconceivable Enlightenment also consisted of 100,000 verses. And this sutra is none other than the last chapter of the uh, Avatamsaka. This legend can be traced back to Ji Zhang, 549 to 613, who had read about it in Nagarjuna's biography. Okay, so I mentioned various chapters being known about in the second century. The real quick answer to your question is the first Chinese translation of the larger collection known as the Avatamsaka was finished in 420, so the early fifth century. Mm. Prior to that, however, as I said, certain chapters had appeared as separate sutras. Um, And then just to give a little background, uh, so the, the spread of Mahayana is also the story of the great game and the, uh, the Silk Road. Um, King Kanishka of the Kushan Empire decided to increase cultural exchanges between his land, which was rather big, and the lands around him. And his Kushan Empire, think of it as like Central and Western Asia, basically, but also containing parts of India at this time. King Kanishka has his reign in the early and mid second century and his empire is fairly massive under his direction and or in the same general ferment that he is generally credited with starting we have translators such as Lokasima, who I mentioned a little bit before, and a person named An Shigao, translating the first Mahayana scriptures into Chinese. It takes until the fifth century to get the Avatamsaka into the collected form we know of today. So that's about three centuries, right? From King Kanishka to the early, that's three centuries. A person known as Buddha Bhadra is the main person responsible for this 
first more comprehensive collation. Uh, almost another three additional centuries on top of that pass until we get the second version, which is almost twice as long. Shishkananda's version is from the late 7th century. This is from the same time as Li Tongshuan, who is not a monk, uh, but he's a lay person who makes an important commentary on this scripture, one that is still consulted today. Uh, it is also in the late 7th century, um, around the same time as Li Tongshuan, uh, perhaps a little bit before him, that Divakara finds, a missing, finds some missing portions of the scripture, whose work helps Shishkananda collate his version. About a century later, a scholar named Prajna does some important translation, and then there's Chen Guan, and he is perhaps the most important commentator. He made two very huge translation or commentaries. Um, and that's probably, if people talk about like a, you know, a, a 40 volume or a hundred volume version, mm -hmm. that's what they're talking about probably is this guy's additional commentary. Well, that's a, that's a very interesting history. So uh, I guess contrary to what I thought, um, there are roots, at least according to legend, at least according to what history seems to imply, is that rather than starting as a Chinese sutra, it most likely started within India. Is that what um, this implies? Well, that's the mystery here is... Right. Or at least um, parts, at least parts, at least some chapters, perhaps. We have Sanskrit versions. We have Sanskrit versions that are quite old, but nobody, some scholars basically think that it all came from India. And then some are suggesting that perhaps quite a lot of it came from Central Asia. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very because nice. these, these Chinese, these Chinese versions we have, these really early ones, like mm -hmm. from the fifth century. Mm -hmm. And then also like Lokasema, mm -hmm all his stuff is coming from Central Asia. Yeah. So it could be that the Central Asian monks got their stuff from India, or it could be that they, they simply thought it up themselves. I mean. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, very interesting. Um, and it is important to mention that some, definitely not, I mean, not necessarily this sutra, but a lot of other Mahayana sutras um, that you can trace back actually did start in Chinese. And then interestingly enough, we're translated backwards into Sanskrit, right? Whereas like, uh, if you look at a lot of other Buddhist sutras and tantras um, that have origins in Central Asia or India, they started out in Sanskrit and then were translated into Chinese and Tibetan and other languages later. So it, it's an interesting time where you have, <laughs> you know, sutras starting out in different languages and going back and then starting out in India and Central Asia and then going to Chinese. So it's, it's not uh, linear is what I'm trying to say. It's not like it totally. started here. Yeah, totally. And it's confusing as heck because <laughs> yeah. you've got the, yeah, these translations who you don't exactly know a lot of times what they're translating from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, very interesting. Um, what's the general setting of the Avatamsaka Sutra? And um, I'm curious if someone was to read this, does it read since there are different chapters that were almost or were considered sutras in themselves, right? Um, is it all a uniform setting? Does it read like a uniform scripture basically? Or is it, does the setting change? And is it almost like you're reading a fully different book with a whole different setting in other chapters? That's another very tricky question. Um, so from the studies that I've done over the past couple months, I'm gathering the impression that uh, because of the various settings, um, I think various translators were trying their best to make it into a more cohesive whole. Mm -hmm. um, but um, a less academic uh, or a less analytical answer, um, let's see. Um, so with regard to place, it's various. And with regard to time, it's a little tricky. Officially, there are seven different places. The first chapter is under the Pipala tree, the Bodhimanda, the seat, the seat of awakening. 
In the last chapter, it is Sravasti, the place of miracles. Um, over the 39 chapters, there are nine assemblies and Buddha teaches in three human places and four heavenly realms simultaneously. And then we can get back to that part later because that's like, how does he do that simultaneously, right? Mm -hmm. The place of enlightenment, the hall of universal light, a place called Anatta Pinda Dasyarama, the peak of Mount Sumaro, the palace of the god Suyama, the heaven of Tusita, and the palace of Paranamita Vasavartan. Mm, okay. Um, also, interestingly enough, that you're mentioning he taught in three human places and uh, four heavenly realms, you said simultaneously, right? Yes. So that's so, uh, uh -huh. okay. Yeah, that's one of the cool things about Avatamsaka is, I guess it's it's a little bit unique in that it's it seems to be presenting a cosmic Buddha um, who has um, miraculous powers. Uh, it's he can, uh, yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know what to say, except it, it's supposed to be, I think, mind-blowing, um, <laughs> you know? Yeah. What, what would you, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, very interesting. What would you say? This is, um, a lot of people describe this as a very psychedelic, like fractal uh, cosmology or view uh, that the sutra presents, right? Like, what, what would you say is the overall um, worldview or what sort of... Uh, what kind of world is this presenting while, while you read it? What, what kind of uh, concepts are you getting from it? Well, so the first answer I would say is you have to be careful to disentangle the... Okay, so there was a school of thought that was born from, basically from this sutra called Huayan. And that means flower ornament. Um, and they had a bunch of sort of philosophical axes to grind. And then they look back to this sutra to, to support their philosophical axe grinding, you know, <laughs> and, uh, so you, you got it. One, I think one has to be careful to disentangle the Huayan school of philosophy that that is actually quite, uh, what's the word, um, in influential over many centuries. And then this scripture itself, because you won't necessarily find Huayan philosophy always inside the scripture explicitly. Mm -hmm. But these commentators spend a lot of time trying to help people see <laughs> these things. <laughs> Okay, so that, that's one answer. The second answer is, um, so, like, some people have described it also as holographic. Mm -hmm. And this particular observation goes back, I think, at least to the 70s or the 1980s. And it is equal parts helpful and unhelpful. Mm -hmm. In the West, one of the locus classicus for this kind of idea this kind of scene is would be like William Blake, auguries of auguries of innocence to see the world in a grain of sand. Mm. Uh, I more than that, or better than that, I like perfect melting of or interpenetration. Uh, in Chinese, it's called Yuan Rong, where truth encompasses falsehood. Following one teaching is following them all. Mm -hmm good encompasses evil right um now when you read this book like some of what i've claimed uh in the preceding minute or two you might find difficult to to swallow it's it's not a very western view but when you read this book that's why that's one of the things that really attracts me is you can see why or how people are coming to these sort of bizarre or unintuitive or magical or paradoxical conclusions you know mm -hmm. uh, very interesting 
Um, have you personally, have you read a lot of other Buddhist sutras or uh, books? And if so, how does this compare to the others? Like what, what distinguishes this in your mind? Sure. Um, I've read a fair amount. Not, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I would not call myself an expert. There's simply too much, um, uh, you know, out there to, to read, to, to safely call himself an, an expert. But let me just say this. Uh, I've read a fair amount of uh, Theravada materials, and traditionally they divide things up into their Tripitaka, right? Vinaya, Sutta, Abhidhamma. The Vinaya is like monastic rules. The Sutra are mostly conversations and commentaries, and the Abhidhamma is Buddhist psychology. I've, I've read a fair amount of that. And then I've read a, a fair amount of Mahayana. And some people like to make a big difference between Theravada and Mahayana. I think some differences are worth commenting on, but mostly I think that's been blown out of proportion. Mm -hmm. um, but to your original question, how do I think this compares? Well, I would have to maybe note some specifics. For example, the, the Dhammapada. Mm -hmm. um, reading the Dhammapada to me uh, is very dry. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I, it did not feel exciting to me. Now, the, <laughs> there, there are interesting, there are interesting aspects, and you know, aspects worthy of, of marveling over in something like the Dhammapada, but. But as a generality, it, it does not hit me as like fantastic or anything. Whereas Avatamsaka is like a like a, a nuclear bomb to the brain, just boom. <laughs> okay, interesting. A lot more flavors and resonances and yeah tones. Yes. The Dhammapada is a lot more dry and kind of you know there there's gems in there, but it's much of a different experience for the reader. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, the Dhammapada, uh, or another one to contrast with, would be like uh, the questions of King Melinda. Mm. You know, again, a, a perfectly readable text, but, um, you know, for the most part, it, it reads almost pedestrian, like, um, mm. yeah. Mm -hmm. How about you? Um, what are what, what would be some things that you could, um, some basic uh, Buddhist texts that you think are people start with? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I personally started out with the Dhammapada because I start, started studying. Well, actually, no, I did not. I started reading some, uh, was it the Dhammapada first? At least in college when I seriously started. Uh, studying Buddhism. Uh, it was through an Eastern um, Eastern religions course. And so I think that the majority of our time in the Buddhist uh, section of the class, we studied the Dhammapada. So that's, I mean, although it is dry, I do think it's still like an important um, text to go over, you know? Yeah. Um, and I would have to read it again because I mean, the, yeah. the last time I read it was, was decades ago and I might, I might get a very, very different impression now that i'm older mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah for sure for sure um yeah i would say definitely that uh and i i mean buddhism is so vast it's so hard to yeah. like pin it down right so it depends totally. on like what avenue you're gonna go i, I guess you would say right um Absolutely. another i mean there's a lot of uh uh what would you say like compiled books sort of like commentaries right. or summaries of scriptures that you can read as well um, like the teachings of the Buddha. One of the, I think the actual first book uh, that I read was my one of my mom's books that was, uh, it was something like, um, like the compiled teachings of the Buddha, but it was really good. It was really, it was an assortment of different, you know, sutras, but it was really, really, really good. I now, really what I wanted to do to close up my section mm -hmm. uh, was to just read uh, almost maybe at random, uh, a, a small portion of the text so the listener can get a quick idea of, of what, uh, what this book is about. So oh, let's try this one. This one's cool. This one is uh, 
book or chapter 12, Chief in Goodness. Then the enlightening being, Manjushri. Manjushri is usually seen as uh, uh, riding a blue lion. Having explained the great virtues of unpolluted, undistorted, pure activity, wanted to bring out the virtues of the aspiration for enlightenment. So he asked the enlightening being called chief in goodness. Or uh, the, the, I guess the Hindu name might be something like <clears throat> Badrashri. Now I have, for the sake of enlightening beings, explained the purifying practices cultivated by Buddhas in the past. Benevolent one, you too, in this assembly, should expound the supreme virtues of practical application. Then Chief in Goodness responded in verse. Very good, benevolent one. You should listen clearly. Those virtues and merits cannot be measured. I will tell, I will now tell a little as well as I can, but it will be, but as a drop of the ocean. When an enlightening being, and when Cleary says enlightening being, it's just Bodhisattva. When a Bodhisattva first determines on the way, vowing to seek and realize Buddha's enlightenment, the virtues thereon are boundless, immeasurable, beyond compare. How much the more so, though countless, through countless boundless eons to fully practice the virtues of the stages and transcendent ways. Even all the Buddhas of the 10 directions together could not fully expound them all. Of such boundless great virtues, I will now tell a little bit, like the space trod by a bird's feet or like a mote of dust of the earth. When enlightening beings or bodhisattvas Determined to seek enlightenment, this is not without cause, not without conditions, engendering pure faith in the Buddha, teaching, and community. By this, they produce a broad, magnanimous mind, not seeking objects of desire, or positions of authority, wealth, personal enjoyment, or fame. It is only to forever annihilate creatures' miseries and to benefit the world that they rouse their will. Okay, that's just a little bit of that book. <laughs> a little taste. <laughs> that, that, yeah, that little taste. Mm -hmm. That one's supposed to be about faith. And that was a topic that you and I were talking about just a day or so ago. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's interesting and cool how Buddhist concept of faith is very different, almost like mm -hmm. night and day between a western idea of faith right 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 very interesting um how, how would you describe or from your understanding how do you see um uh, uh, faith as presented here compared to what perhaps you know i don't know a christian or a western mind uh, would perceive faith as being right so <clears throat> i'm confident in talking about a western idea of faith yeah. Yeah. And I'm less confident in talking about the, the Eastern idea, but let me give it a try. So a Western idea of faith very often, unfortunately, in my mind, talks about faith in terms of creeds and whatnot and declarative sentences that people must accept without evidence. Mm -hmm. And uh, from an Eastern point of view, um, it's not about declarative propositions um it's much more about action okay so totally different in regards to holding some sort of creed or um dogma right some sort of conceptual belief but rather more based on uh action or uh direct experience perhaps yeah i mean i would i would say like for example, a person who has faith in the in the Eastern sense mm -hmm. is sort of following the way, right? Mm -hmm. And so his path is clear. Mm -hmm. A person who doesn't have faith in the Eastern sense has a path 
that is blocked, right? Like, uh, mm -hmm. so almost like in, in, in both senses or in both in both instances, it's not a matter of a person's mind or beliefs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. How sure. about you? No, it reminds me of uh, well, what you're saying there reminds me of like Wu Wei. That's a different, <laughs> different tradition, Taoism, but it's sort of uh, an alignment rather than a yeah. conceptual framework that you hold in your mind that you're attached to, right? And if anything, faith in this is almost like the release of attachment, right, and total hmm. uh, immersion in in reality and the moment and clarity rather than holding on to any sort of idea or branch of, uh, you know, conceptual thought, right? Mm. I, that's where you I see a huge, a huge difference. Yeah. yeah, I agree. You, you mentioned Taoism, and that's been one of the, the things that, that got me back onto the Avatamsaka was I was looking at uh, Cleary's, uh, same person, Thomas Cleary, his translation of um, The Golden Flower, Secret of the Golden Flower, and that's supposed to be a, a Taoist text. It is, but it has quite a lot of Buddhist influence. And that's one thing I really enjoy about reading Eastern texts is usually they freely borrow one from the other instead of like, no, you know, this is this is my, you know, little area. You, you know, you stay over there. And, you know, <laughs> like it's very um, it seems like an open minded set of traditions rather than mm -hmm. like a set of dogmas right 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 yeah that's a good um uh good way to see it it kind of reminds me like yesterday a guy I interviewed in punjab was just talking about the exchange in that region where you're talking about the silk road and um how that region punjab was originally sort of comprised like afghanistan and um you know northern india and that there's just a, such a range of uh, practices, they're all studying together. You have Sufis, Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, Vajrayana, Hindu Tantra, Agoris, right? And it's not like they're all in a, uh, in a vacuum, right? It's not like they're just there, only not exposed to each other in their own bubble. They're freely, you know, they're trading, they're reading each other's books, they're having conversations. So um, I think that's where you can see yeah. a lot of the interplay of these ideas. And of course, in, in uh, like Chinese Buddhism as well, right? Taoism, Mahayana, you see these things, these concepts, these uh, exchange of ideas playing off each other. The most international place <laughs> that I feel like I've ever been is uh, in Yangon, Myanmar, or mm -hmm. Burma. Mm -hmm. I went to Yangon and all of a sudden it felt like every person was a different color. I saw like hundreds of thousands of people and nobody was the same color it was it was one of the most intense feelings i've ever had like i just thought wow i have to imagine that on the one hand these people are all very different but on the other hand maybe some of their skin color doesn't matter and they just you know i don't know it was a weird feeling mm. it was, yeah very it was, interesting it was a high and I, i'm extremely excited for your travels coming up and that's that's another reason why we decided to do this conversation is I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about um, Tantra. Now, but before we do that, I need to refill on my tea. Can you wait a moment? Oh yeah, sure. sure. Let's start. All okay. right. Cool. How does this, how do your Tantric practices differ from previous practices you've engaged with? Okay. That's a very, very good question. Um, previous practices I've engaged with. Well, <laughs> that's also complicated because I've engaged with a lot of previous practices, right? And so yeah. it's kind of like, how does previous practices compare with previous practices, right? It's right. not like you're like one thing and then, the, you know. So True. like, uh, I'm sure yeah. there's been a building of base, right? Yeah, for sure. I guess the most, um, I guess the most consistent practice since I was a teenager that I've engaged in has been simple meditation, right? Like, uh, just the vipassana or just meditation on the breath, um, some yoga, things like that. And then from there sort of branched out into uh, different different types of practices, right? But um, hmm. how does it compare to other practices in general, perhaps? I would say that um, it's very uh, hyper-focused. Okay, I would say the map is very clear. 
So what you're learning, um, uh, it's very, very clear. However, if you're learning only through books, perhaps no. So I guess I have to, there's a misnomer there. A lot of these practices now, um, these tantric practices, you can actually find them in books. It's not, you know, uh, totally secret. You can go out there, you can find what I'm talking about. However, I really do think, and pretty much everyone will advise you that it is important to have um, the guidance or instruction of a Lama or a guru or what have you to point, like pointing out instructions, right? And I found that like, I've read a lot of these books and without that, without the guidance of um, somebody else, I would feel, you know, lost or not really necessarily qualified and maybe making mistakes and what have you, right? And so I would say, I guess that's a, that's a big difference. Some of the other practices I've done, you could certainly do solo, right? Yeah. Whereas these practices, I would say you can do them solo. It's not like you can't. However, extremely, it's night and day between having a qualified Lama or guru teach you these practices and, uh, you know, going about them on your own. And so um, specifically Buddhist Tantra, as well as Hindu Tantra, as far as I know, um, you're supposed to have somebody teaching you these things, right? So there's the concept of empowerments, right? And so, and transmissions, right? And so, uh, like, for example, certain uh, practices, certain mantras, um, certain yidams or deity practices, you're not supposed to just read it in a book and do it. You're supposed to receive a transmission um, first before you're qualified, you know, to... Um, to actually practice that, right? And so generally these transmissions, it's almost like the way I can describe it from my experience, this is only speaking for me. I don't want to, <laughs> I'm not some spokesperson expert, right? I can only speak from my own experience, but I would say from receiving these sort of uh, empowerments or transmissions um, that it's almost like a subtle body adjustment. You feel it's, it's sort of like, um, like a tuning fork or something like that, right? Like it, turning on the radio station or dialing yourself into uh like turning on the wi-fi right <laughs> like you know you can find the wi-fi but unless you have the password then your your two devices aren't really synced up right you're picking it up but not really you don't get the signal right and so that's probably the best way that i could describe um receiving an empowerment or a transmission to do these sort of practices right so i guess uh, to answer your question a uh, couple differences are the clarity of the map, meaning that the practices have been developed over time in these different lineages, um, discussed, practiced thoroughly, transmitted. And so they're very highly developed, I guess you would say. And then also that they do, in essence, require some sort of teacher or um, guru, lama, what have you. Mm -hmm. Cool. That that comports with uh, some of my research over the past couple months. Uh, let me see if I can find it real quickly here. Yeah, there's this this interesting early uh, Mahayana text mm -hmm. called Pratyutpana Samadhi Sutra, mm -hmm. and the purpose of it is to come face to face with all the Buddhas of the present. Mm -hmm. And they say that there's a different, there's a, there's a couple different ways you can approach this Samadhi, but mm -hmm. that you need a guide. Right. You can't, you, you can't, or it's very dangerous to try to do it on your own. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of the, um, well, specifically in the tradition that I'm uh, practicing, which is Vajrayana or Tibetan Buddhism, often it's called. Um, there's many stories about, uh, you know, the Mahasiddhas or great masters, I guess you would say in English, great enlightened masters like Milarepa, Naropa, Talopa. Um, for example, like Milarepa trying to go on the side and do the practices on his own and figure out himself, but then kind of running into troubles, and, you know, <laughs> going off on these like escapades and then realizing like, God damn it, like, now I got <laughs> I gotta start all the way back, you know, so <laughs> he thinks he's like taking a shortcut, but in fact, right. all he did is go back, right, from where he was basically, right, like backslid, so to speak, right, and yes. so, um, I guess another thing about these practices are they are very powerful. So um, while they may seem simple and they may seem um, 
or they may seem very complex actually at other times, right? But uh, they are very effective. That's what I've found. And with other people that I've talked to, practice them, who perhaps they're practicing Zazen for, um, for example, uh, somebody I talked to that is doing these tantric Buddhist practices, they had done Zazen for 20 years, uh, studied Zen for a very, very long time. And then they started doing these tantric Buddhist practices. And it's like a night and day, you know, it's sort of like, uh, I don't know, to use a drug analogy, I guess you would say like, like smoking a couple of hits of weed versus like DMT or something like that. Right. right. <laughs> well, like, you open the gateways, right? And um, there is, I don't want to bastardize, bastardize this. I forgot. I think it was Milarepa when he met Marpa, which was his guru, his uh, right. lineage guru. I think he said something like, oh, I'm already, I've already trained in the ways of, um, you know, Vipassana. I've already mastered a degree of Samadhi. And then Marpa laughs at him. He's like, that's your, <laughs> he's like, you, you do not, that, that's not going to get you enlightenment in this lifetime. Like you're picking up, you know, specks of sand in the ocean. Like you need a bulldozer, right? You need that with the, these diamond vehicle instructions, you know, you can achieve enlightenment in this lifetime. And that's really what the, Tantric practices are focused on. It's sort of uh, like a direct quickening of these experiences versus a slow um, buildup over several lifetimes, right? Wait, um, you might want to uh, say that again because I lost you there for a second. Oh, okay. Hold on a sec. Said something. Okay. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what these practices are essentially aimed at is direct experience of enlightenment or uh, achieving enlightenment in one lifetime via these tantric buddhist practices rather than taking the uh, slow route of you know vipassana which could take several lifetimes right and so it's it sort of said that if you're in this tradition it's saying if your, your karma is built up to a degree and the it's like if the seeker is ready the guru appears kind of thing right like if you, you have that degree of previous experience, then when you're ready, you will get this, these sort of teachings, right? And so, yeah, yeah, so it's very interesting, you know, take it for what it is. But um, I find that uh, even as like the Buddha taught, he taught 84,000 dharmas for the 84,000 different types of people, right? And so it's sort of like you can try this one on. If it works for you, great. If not, then there's always another practice or another um thing that you can do mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. i like that mm -hmm. let me ask you um can you please tell me a bit about the setting the context the place etc in which these practices you've recently been learning um uh yeah okay sure so uh for me personally i've been learning mostly through zoom so here in korea actually there is a um a sangha uh, sangha of or a group i guess you would say right that does these uh tantric practices tantric buddhist practices uh led by a retreat master and a lama however due to covid19 <laughs> you know a lot of these things they're you know they're kind of moved online and um currently the the main the main uh, retreat master is still here in korea however the head lama is in um, canada right now can't enter korea and so they've been moving mostly towards doing uh, these Zoom uh, uh, practices, right? And so for me, currently, the setting I've been learning is mostly through Zoom, and uh, which is interesting because, you know, there's debates like, is that legitimate? Or, uh, for example, some people might say receiving an empowerment uh, through the internet might not be legitimate, right? Yeah. And so... Uh, However, if you look at, for example, a lot of the most respected lamas right now are actually doing that, like Garchin Rinpoche, um, other famous, uh, like different sects of Buddhism. He's a pretty high up lama in Kagyu Buddhism, very well respected. And he's he basically said, no, it's not. It's more about what you get from the experience. Right. I think he, he was asked that question because he's doing these empowerments online as well. And he said, I've done empowerments where people were physically present for them, but got zero out of it. Yeah. And I've done online empowerments where people got a lot more out of it than the people that did them, you know, in person, so to speak. So it's more of a matter of what you get out of it rather than um, it being online or not, according to what these people think. And of course, you have people who would uh, argue that as well, that online doesn't count or something like that. Right? <laughs> you're you're going you're gonna to have people that uh, have that view as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
my my take uh i, I feel like um if a student is ready, then a lot can be learned, no, no matter the medium. Sure. But if the student isn't really ready, then it doesn't matter if they're physically there, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. For that's, sure. Just, that's just my opinion. Take it, take it for what it's worth. Right, um, right, right, right. No, I agree. Okay. I agree, you know? So, okay. So. My last question. Um, uh, have you undergone any tantric initiations yet? And can you talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, so I have taken some empowerments. Um, so that's what they're called. You don't call them initiations. So there, no, there are initiations. Yeah. You can call it an empowerment. Um, there are initiations. Um, so it's, it's kind of complex because there's different, uh, levels. yeah, different levels or different things. Right. So there's like, for example, like a lung is more, listening to something red that's supposed to uh, give you the ability, I guess, or the qualification to do different practices, right? Whereas like empowerments are a little bit more of a ceremonial thing, right? There's more of a ceremony involved. And a lot of the empowerments are for for practicing certain yidam. And a yidam would be like a deity, right? You have like, for example, uh, Chinrazig or Tara, Chakrasambar, there's these sort of uh, uh, va- uh, vast array of deities, right? Wrathful deities, uh, benevolent. And they all have these specific sadhanas attached to them, these sort of uh, generation stage yogic practices, right? And so um, I, I guess that's pretty an interesting thing to discuss. So these practices are basically you are identifying with a specific deity that has these sort of uh, different characteristics, right? And you're building a sort of mandala around it. It's sort of a meditational mandala where you are this deity and there's a array of uh, dakinis and different uh, beings around you, right? And the purpose of this, it depends on really what which one you're doing, but it's sort of preparing you for later practices. It's sort of getting, uh, there's a concept of vajra pride or you totally identifying with this deity. And I guess for people who are into Western occultism, it could be kind of similar to um, invocation, I guess you would say, where you totally identify as this specific, you totally invoke it, identify it, you have, instead of walking around as your normal self and your ego, you're in that Vajra pride or that full, you know, full compassion or whatever elements of this mandala or deity that you're practicing, right? And um, yeah, so for, to practice these, you do need some empowerment or initiations, right? And so, yeah, I've, I've received a, a few in different empowerments and I, and uh, they were through the internet. So whether that's legitimate or not, for me, it felt legitimate you know? <laughs> and uh, I get benefit for me. It's, you know, getting benefit out of the practice and uh, what I felt I received through that empowerment. That's more important than where it was or what have you. Right. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I've undergone some of these and yeah, the practice have been very beneficial and uh yeah, as far as, uh, so so that's the generation stage I was talking about, right? Focusing on a yidam or a deity. And then there's the higher yoga tantras where you're working with uh, Wait, subtle let's, body. Let's, let's stop for a second. Okay. A, a yidam a is the same as a deity or I don't know what that is. Yes, yes, yes. It's the same as a deity. So yidam practice would be um, you, like an invocation as I was saying, right? So you specifically uh, identifying with a specific deity and... Uh, forming a mandala right it's like a meditational mandala visualization it'll have certain mantras associated with it which um are said to have some specific quality you know invoking specific qualities right and as mentioned earlier uh technically to do these practices you do need that empowerment that sort of attunement in order to do these right and then uh basically from there that's called a generation stage practice and then there's the or yoga tantra and then there's the higher yoga tantra or completion stage practices, right? And those are more involved with uh, uh, working with the subtle body or what some would say like kundalini, the chakras, the inner winds, channels, drops, right? And so <clears throat> that, that generation or yidam practice prepares you for the later completion stage practices, right? Where you're working with, uh, which is what I was studying for a while too, with the kundalini, uh, the six yogas of Naropa. 
which go into working with your internal energy system. Uh, a little bit about dream yoga, Bardo, uh, clear light, all these other, there's six specific uh, different practices, I guess you would say, but they're all based on working with the subtle energy system in the body. So that's the basis of it. Yeah. Uh, that sounds extremely uh, fascinating and something I, I need to look more into um, given that it, it aligns with a lot of, a lot of my interests. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, so there's a generation stage and a completion stage and that's it or. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> there is uh, also preliminary practices too. So um, to give you a more full picture. So I guess uh, you would start out with uh, in order to technically to do these practices, one should be uh, at least versed in basic Buddhist philosophy and Vipassana um, meditation. Uh, you know, the basics of Buddhism, Four Noble Truths, the basics of the Bodhisattva vow and Mahayana Buddhism. And then from there, if one is to go into the Tantric Buddhist path, then there is what's called the Nundro. Nundro, sorry, my Tibetan's not <laughs> the best pronunciation. Nundro, which is preliminary practice, right? Which is okay. um, comprised of four different things. You have um, sort of uh, prostrations or taking refuge. Um, and then you have uh, from there, you have Vajrasattva practice. It's like a purification kind of practice, right? mandala practice, and then guru yoga. So these are these four different specific practices that prepare you for the generation stage of the yidam practice, which prepares you for the later completion stage practice of working with the chakras and energy channels and um, later dream yoga, bardo yoga, and things like this, right? So you mentioned mentioned something like Lung or long? Yes. Uh-huh. You said these are something that you listen to? Yes, yes, yes. So um, technically, in order to do Nundro, one should hear a Lama read. So Nundro is the preliminary practices I was just talking about, the four preliminaries of uh, okay. tantric practice. And so in order to practice those Nundro practices, one should receive lung, which is an oral transmission right? An oral reading. It's, it's like oral, uh, it's, it's the Lama reading off a specific scripture or chant, I guess you would say. And that would qualify one to do the preliminary practices, right? And then I think in Tibetan, it's like way wrong. I, I'm, I don't want to butcher it, but that's the empowerment, which is more of a ceremony, which uh, go for the generation practices, generation stage practices. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. <clears throat> Wow. Okay. It's complicated, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's steps and, yeah. <laughs> right. I feel like it's another GD thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait, oh, where's yeah. the Where's, where's, where's Netzak? What the fuck? <laughs> right, right, right. No, I, I, yeah, it's, um, it does seem, it is hierarchical, I guess, to an extent, like it's like you're building a foundation and then you yeah. gradually, you know, work your way up. So um, well, you know, a, a hierarchy in a in a a longstanding tradition like Tantra mm-hmm. or, or or Tibetan yoga mm-hmm. bothers me less sometimes than <laughs> than, uh, than the like uh, Masonic sort of <laughs> puttering about. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, I think it's. I think if one were to um, uh, have some sort of academic interest in these topics too. Like reading yeah. books like um, like the Six Yogas of Naropa mm-hmm. is pretty interesting. Or what I'm reading now is the uh, it's called A Lamp to Illuminate the Five Stages, uh, mm-hmm. the Guya Samaja Tantra, which is considered uh, the king of tantras. Right? It's sort of like the <laughs> it's the Avatamsaka Sutra is of to sutras. Or yeah, this would be that of tantras, right? And so oh, okay, okay. Um, a lot of uh, really um, important scholars or masiddhas and enlightened masters focus so much time on that specific tantra it's been Mm. you know the focus of it's like the main focus for a lot of these um these uh enlightened masters so that it's that's considered the king of tantra so obviously something Mm. that's worth studying if one is interested in these topics right Mm. and so 
Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting stuff. And uh, they, they go into, I was talking a little bit earlier, but these uh, completion stage practices, starting out with the energy channels in your body, winds, drops. And then uh, what, what's fascinating, and I, I'm not necessarily qualified to speak on it, but just the different practices are quite interesting. The dream yoga practices, the bardo yoga practices, right? So it's sort of, it's all seen as one continuum, right? Like your waking state, your dream state, and then the death uh, to rebirth state, right? And so you're training in the waking state with the energy channels and then using that in the dream and then using these practices eventually when you die, right? Wait, so uh, there are uh, practices in this tradition where mm -hmm. you're attempting to use your, your dreaming life? Yes, yes, yes. So a lot of people... Wow. Yeah, right. Wow. So a lot of people like, uh, I guess you would call it like lucid dreaming. That's very popular, right? And these other sure, kind of sure. dream practices. Um, in uh, this tradition, there is something similar like lucid dreaming. And then also <clears throat> there's something called um, dream yoga where, yeah, you realize you're dreaming. You do, you do the sort of kundalini practice before sleep. And yeah. then it's uh, being cognizant that you're dreaming while you're dreaming, right? Trippy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then developing is what's called an illusory body or Vajra body, right? Like a light body. And uh, being aware of the illusionary appearance of existence, right? So it's sort of using the dream as a continuation of your waking practice, right? That's trippy. Because so, actually, I got interested in all a lot of these things when I was about 12 or 13 and one of the very first books I read was this book on lucid dreaming mm -hmm. and I I tripped myself out because I could I achieved a certain amount of success with the lucid dreaming like I could I could go to bed and then sort of almost do anything I wanted in the dream mm. and it freaked me out right <laughs> it's, it's, it feels really real like right it's freaky, right. It's freaky. Right. And you can sort of, um, yeah, it is interesting. Right. Um, and there are different techniques for it. Right. Uh, depending on what you're there. Are, there's a lot of books on it. And, you know, these days it's a popular topic in, in the West as well. Lucid dreaming. Right. Um, which I, I'm not sure I haven't read that much on it in like Western stuff a little bit. I've read a little bit on it, but a lot of it is realizing you're dreaming. And then you can kind of, like you said, do whatever you want. And, uh, you know, you're sort of aware you can fly and, uh, things along these lines. Right. Um, in this tradition too, a lot of it is, as I mentioned, a continuation of your tantric practice, right? So mm -hmm. while, while it does say you should fly and you should, you know, well, I'm dreaming now I can control it. You're in this sort of lucid state, right? However, of course, it's still focused on practice though, right? So sure. uh, one sure. thing that, um, one way to continue your practice once you're in dream yoga would be to conjure up face your fears and face the, oh. uh, you know, your, what you're clinging to, right. Release attachments and go into these sort of dream yogic practices where let's say you're afraid of um, like heights or you're afraid of, you know, you have jealousy. It's sort of like going through the, it's sort of like a psychedelic experience where you have to face these things, you know, uh, that may appear as wrathful deities or hellish realms. Right. And sort of, being able to realize them as illusionary and a manifestation of your own uh, kleshas or obscurations and karma, right? right? And then, so you're using that dream yoga as a continuation of these practices, right? And then it is said that once one dies, they go through these bardos, right? Which are like uh, after death transitionary realm, like another dream realm, I guess you would say, right? And that's also a continuation. If one is adept at dream yoga, and waking state practices, then one will realize all the different, you know, images and um, things that will appear in the bardo, right? And so then one will be able to sort of overcome these things and then, you know, pass either enter perhaps some sort of pure land like you're talking about in your um, uh, Abhatamsaka, a rebirth, right? Or total ab absolving into the clear light, right? Total discipline. Oh, Mm -hmm. I, I you dropped for about uh 10 seconds there can you can you rewind maybe 20 seconds 
Okay, sure, sure, sure. So if one is adept in those um, bardo, or sorry, dream yoga practices and waking state practices, then mm -hmm. once one enters the bardo, it's familiar, right? The after death, mm -hmm. the state of dying is no longer unconscious, but rather you're, you remain, as, as you do in the dream world, right? When you're dreaming, if you can remain aware in the dream of the illusionary experiences and the different things that are popping out at you, right? It's the same thing when you die. It's like going into the dream world again, right? And then, <clears throat> yeah, from there, one could, there's many different paths, you know, one could uh, aim at another rebirth, right? Mm. Um, there's there's different, rather than, you, you could almost consciously rebirth or uh, choose a, high, a good existence rather than just sort of going with whatever your tendencies unconsciously, you know, warp you into the next life, right? right. Wow. Okay, so, that's trippy. That's yeah. a really good. That's a really good explanation as well. Like, um, that's one of the things I've I've enjoyed a lot about your podcast uh, the episodes that I I haven't listened to them all, but quite a few. And you and or your guests explain things really well. Sometimes that's wow. That's cool. I think it's mostly my guests, but yeah, <laughs> I try to, <laughs> I try to ask the good questions, you know. So. Uh... <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, but um, yeah, I, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, I don't consider myself by any means some sort of expert in this field, just always a mere student. However, um, it's a pretty interesting path to be on. And um, yeah, I find these uh, tantric practices very um, beneficial and uh, useful, right? As, as uh, Buddha said, try them on for size, right? Question everything. Try it on for size, and if it works for you, then go ahead with it, right? And that so, book, uh, The King of the Tantras, what's it called again? The Lamp of what? Uh, I think I have it here. Hold on. One second. Uh, one second. So I have it here. It says, A Lamp to Illuminate the Five Stages. Uh, teachings on the... Uh-huh. Teachings on the Guya Samaja Tantra. So the actual name of the Tantra itself, right, is the Guya Samaja Tantra. However, this book here is a lamp to illuminate the five stages, which is <clears throat> Tsongkhapa's commentary. And he sort of breaks down the Tantra into <laughs> digestible portions and sort of each teaching. It's, it's an organized uh, presentation of the Guya Samaja Tantra, right? And Tsongkhapa is, uh, who's considered the founder of the Yellow Hat School, the Galukpas, which is the same lineage as the Dalai Lama. So the Tsongkhapa, uh, or new school, basically, right, of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, Tsongkhapa is considered, he's one of the great scholars, enlightened masters. Uh, in that school, they call him like the second Buddha, right? And what's interesting is in uh, all these different lineages, everyone's like the second Buddha, right? Like you have uh, Padmasambhava, I, don't, I've, I've, I imagine you've heard of him. Padmasambhava is like the original uh, master to bring Tantric Buddhism into Tibet. And so for uh, the uh, Nyingma school, he's like the second Buddha, right? And then for the yellow hats, oops, I think we froze. Your connection? Oh, yeah. we froze again, right? Okay, okay. Uh, where did I leave off? Uh, you you were just introducing, uh, the what's his name? Padma. Vizana. Okay, okay. Padmasambhava. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sambhava. you have who's like the second Buddha of the Yellow Hat or Galukpa school, the lineage of the yeah. Dal Dalai Lama, right? And then you have Padmasambhava. He's considered like, all of like these great lineage masters are like the second Buddha, right? Right. And uh, what's cool about Buddhism in that regard is that they're all respected among the other. It's not like they necessarily, they, they respect all of the lineages and study with them. Like everyone is a second Buddha or a third Buddha. It's not like right. we have Padmasambhava is the original second Buddha. <laughs> Fuck you, some papa. That guy's an asshole, right? It's, yeah, uh, it seems non-competitive usually. Yeah, usually. I mean, there are political. Um, I mean, as with anything, right? You have power struggles and politics and things along those lines, right? But at the same time, yeah, it's not not necessarily. Yeah, it's not like this is the only right second. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, I, th I think it's interesting to, if you're going to study Tibetan Buddhism, it's good to get a full range of um, what's going on there with the old school and the new school, right? Uh, what's cool about uh, learning both is that, what's cool about learning the new school, I suppose, is like somebody like Tsongkhapa, he had access to like all of everything, right? He had 
the teachings of Padmasambhava, Marpa, Milarepa. So he's going off of like everything we have up until this point and sort of working with everything, distilling it, and then refining it, right? So you have sort of like a, um, sort of like what you said with the Avatamsaka Sutra, like a full compilation with commentary, right? Which can be very useful, I think, for somebody, instead of just grabbing a random Tantra or Sutra and like, oh, what the hell is going on here, right? But you, yeah. had, these, you had these awesome dudes who were uh, willing to spend their whole lifetime doing that, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool and interesting to me. Very good. Mm-hmm. Well, you definitely answered some of my questions because like um, you were, you would occasionally write me something on, on uh, Facebook chat and I'd be like, Oh, I don't really understand that. And then like a couple of weeks later you, you would do the same thing. And I was like, I don't really know what he's talking about. <laughs> so I, I, I wanted to pick your brain and you've given me this opportunity. So mm-hmm. thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really good. Um, I think that uh, maybe in the show notes, I'll include, um, so you had mentioned that with the Avatamsaka Sutra, um, yep. the Cleary, Cleary translation is the main one that's available in English, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're an English speaker, I think that's the one that most people would buy. Okay, I heard, I'm not sure, I, I believe I read it somewhere, but I heard that there's a new translation maybe this year coming out. I don't know if you've heard anything about this as well, but um Okay. Yeah. Maybe I'll put, maybe I'll update the, uh, the video later if there is the new translation coming out, but for now the Cleary is like the definitive main, uh, go-to source, right? Yeah. I mean, I get the impression that there's probably a lot of, a lot of English speakers who would like to make a competing translation, mm-hmm. but most people probably aren't Thomas Clary. So yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> anyways, yeah, it was a great conversation. Um, maybe any final thoughts? Like uh, we mentioned, people can check out the Clary version of Avatamsaka Sutra. Um, any other resources you would um, point people towards? Well, just a, uh, not a resource, but just uh, an idea for people to sit with for a second. Zen is very popular in the West and I don't have anything, I don't have any problems with Zen, but one of the interesting things about uh, Avatamsaka is it's one of the things that gives birth to Zen. Zen would not be possible without Avatamsaka. So if if Zen is something that, that maybe interests you, Avatamsaka might also be something that interests you. And a previous episode where I interviewed a Korean monk, he had mentioned that that scripture, a Zen Korean monk, right? He had mentioned that the Hwa, I think it's called Hwaomgyong or Hwaomgyong in Korean, which is the Avatamsaka yes. Sutra, as being so critical to uh, Korean Zen Buddhism as well. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, uh, it's been a good uh, chat and thanks for coming on. And uh, until next time.